Welcome to an NJ Spotlight Roundtable, New Jersey's Energy Future, Energy Efficiency. This program was recorded Friday, September 21st, 2018 at the Robert Treat Hotel in downtown Newark, New Jersey. In this part four of a five-event series on New Jersey's energy future, we'll be exploring energy efficiency. New Jersey is getting serious about reducing how much energy its businesses and the public use. A new law enacted this spring mandates significant cuts in consumption of electricity and gas. If achieved, it could, by one projection, lead to savings of up to $200 million a year for customers. A panel of industry experts, policymakers, and clean energy advocates will explain how we reach that goal and what needs to happen to get us there. In this podcast, we'll hear opening remarks from Stephen Gable, president of Gable Associates, followed by a panel discussion featuring Mary Barber, director of New Jersey Clean Energy Environmental Defense Fund, Stephanie Brand, director of the New Jersey Division of Rate Council, David Daly, president and chief operating officer, Public Service Electric and Gas Company, Tom Massaro, senior vice president, marketing, customer service, and energy efficiency for New Jersey Resources, and Adam Procell, president and chief executive officer, Lime Energy. Moderating the panel will be Tom Johnson, energy reporter for NJ Spotlight. At the lectern to introduce today's program is John Mooney, founding editor of NJ Spotlight. Good morning, everyone, and welcome. My name is John Mooney. I'm the founding editor of NJ Spotlight, and uh, welcome you all to what is, I think, our fourth in our series on New Jersey's energy future. Um, our last three, one on electric vehicles, another on infrastructure, another on renewable energy. Um, and the next one, and mark this in your calendars, is uh, going to be on offshore wind on November 9th uh, down in Hamilton at the Hilton Garden Inn. Uh, so mark that down. These events, uh, for those of you who have not been here, uh, been to one of these for us, these roundtables, uh, really uh, a key part of our mission um, in, in serving New Jersey as a, a news and information site. We've done probably more than 50 of them in our eight years on all kinds of topics. Uh, you know, everything from charter schools to, um, you know, the future of Obamacare and, and all kinds of issues, the pension crisis and the like, all kinds of issues that are important to New Jersey. And we think really important to getting people uh, in the room talking about it. I, I say this often, uh, we live in this virtual world where we have all these conversations over email and and uh, Twitter and everything else. And I, I just think it's critical to get folks in the room talking to each other face to face, um, doing the network then networking, which would obviously is important to these events too, but but you know, seeing the, the nuance in these discussions. And and it's it's really important to what NJ Spotlight's about and, and we think it's really important to the public discourse as well. Um, we also, it's, it's not in the energy world, but we have two other events coming up before the end of the year. Uh, we're doing one on um, the Alice campaign. If of those who know about it, um, United Way has led for the last 10 years a campaign around the working poor, and we are going to uh, help celebrate that and, and discuss it going for forward. And we have um, Senate President Steve Sweeney and hopefully Assembly Speaker uh, Craig Coughlin will be coming to speak at that. And that's on uh, October 29th and will be held at Robert Wood Johnson Hospital. Uh, so please mark that. And that's an evening event um, and a little different for us. And then we're doing another one on October 25th at Douglas College at Rutgers. 
uh, the third or fourth in our series on the opioids crisis, and, and that one on recovery issues, and that's been a, another obviously important topic for, for folks. Uh, I want to, um, I wouldn't be doing my job if I didn't give a, a plug to NJ Spotlight in all this. Um, we are a member and reader supported nonprofit um, and really important to us. We thank you all for being here, and um, but your support means a lot, both uh, in your attendance as well as uh, if you can financially. So I would um, you know, implore you, if you can, uh, to uh, chip in to keep us going. I think it's, um, as we all know, the debates and, and discussions around media these days and, and its future, and I, we think we found a model that has worked pretty well but it does rely on member support. So uh, there are lots of donate buttons all over our site. And if you need one, I will I will point you. I will stand in the back and point you directly where to do so. But um, it really means a lot. And, and as journalists, to have that support really means a lot. Um, to pull off these events, uh, we also need the support of sponsors. Um, it's part of that business model. It's also uh, I think part of the, the public discourse. And um, for this event, we have several sponsors. And I want to introduce Steve Shallot, our business development director, to say a few words about them before we start the program. Steve? Thanks, everyone. On behalf of NJ Spotlight, um, we, are, we are very pleased to produce this event. And uh, as John said, we couldn't do it without our sponsors. And I'd like to say a few words on their behalf. Um, as uh, a way of setting the stage um, for today's event. So our uh, sponsors include Lime Energy, uh, which is a leading provider, leading national provider of innovative commercial energy efficiency solutions that meet the goals of both utilities and policymakers. They have completed more than 150,000 energy efficiency projects that save uh, business, businesses 1.6 million megawatt hours of energy, and the resulting 179 million in annual energy bill savings generated by Lime's projects are targeted to create over the next 10 years nearly 14,000 jobs in the communities that they serve. Um, also sponsoring um, now is NJ Resources, which is a Fortune 1000 company providing natural gas and clean energy services. Its principal subsidiary, New Jersey Natural Gas, has been in business since 1952, serving Monmouth, Ocean, and Morris counties. And, um, and NJ Natural Gas is an innovative leader in energy efficiency, uh, managing energy usage and reducing emissions. Um, our next sponsor is uh, Rexel Energy Solutions. They're a forward-thinking supplier of energy-efficient solutions exclusively focused on energy service companies, utility-driven programs, and lighting retrofits. They work with their partners to customize ideal lighting solutions to create a pleasant, positive sales and service environment while maximizing energy and cost savings. Uh, Rexel offers a wide array of products to meet all energy efficiency needs and can assist in mitigating costs by tapping into available incentives from local utilities. Also sponsoring is um, PSENG, which is the largest provider of gas and electric service in New Jersey, serving 2.2 million electric and 1.8 million gas customers in more than 300 urban, suburban, and rural communities, including the state's largest cities. PSNG's energy efficiency programs have saved customers $130 million since 2009 and avoided emissions that are the equivalent of taking 30,000 cars off the road a year. The utility also develops solar systems on landfills and brownfields and offers energy efficiency programs for hospitals, small businesses, 
government facilities and nonprofits. And lastly, sponsoring as well is Gable Associates, which is a specialized energy, environmental, and public utility consulting firm with active participation in New Jersey marketplace policy and regulatory issues for over 25 years. They've conducted hundreds of transactions in retail and wholesale energy markets, including support for over 250 energy efficiency and renewable energy projects. Gabriel Associates has a unique and specific expertise and analytical capabilities in energy, energy efficiency, efficiency matters. And they have in-depth involvement with PGM processes and energy procurement. And uh, momentarily, Steve Gable is going to give us some opening remarks. But first, I'd like to bring John Mooney back. And uh, thanks again to our sponsors for this event. All right, we'll get started. Um, it's my pleasure to introduce Steve Gable uh, to be our, our keynote speaker today. Um, I've had the pleasure of meeting him a few years back once uh, Spotlight got going. I, I personally cover education and this was a lot of new uh, information for me and, and learning about the energy sphere. Um, and for those of you who know Steve, uh, not only does he bring a lot of insight and intelligence to these discussions, but also makes them very accessible and understandable to people like me. And, and uh, we, we appreciate that. Uh, uh, he's the president of Gable Associates, which he started in 1993, I believe, and before that was the electric division director of uh, uh, New Jersey BPU. And my pleasure to introduce Steve Gable. Thank you. Before I get into uh, the meat and potatoes here, I need to say something to uh, to John and Tom and Steve this, uh, about this conference and about what they've been doing in New Jersey, because I'm very, very appreciative to have the opportunity to be here. Uh, back in 1977, Reggie Jackson joined the Yankees. And when he arrived, the key guy was Thurman Munson. Reggie said, I'm the straw that stirs the drink now. Uh, to me, when you look at this group here and the groups they put together in the past, Spotlight has become the straw that stirs the drink. To me, in terms of promoting energy discussion in New Jersey, I'm really thankful to you guys to make all this happen. You really have taken on momentum. So. The crowd here speaks to that, and the really, really good panel that you're about to hear speaks to that as well. Uh, I'm going to riff through a couple of things here. Um, first, as long as I'm playing history teacher for a second, I won't do any more baseball unless Stephanie gets into it. Uh, I went back preparing for this thing, and... Uh, looked at the history of energy policy in New Jersey. And the easiest way to do that was to look back at all the energy master plans, because they've been going on since, I believe, 1978 was the first one. There was a bunch of policy before that. And in each and every one of them, what we're talking about today is highlighted, and in some cases, the top highlight of those energy master plans. The 78 plan, that goes back a little ways. I think it's, I looked 
thought about it. It's probably me, maybe Ed Lloyd, and one or two others who are hanging around for that. Item number two, promote conservation as a new source of energy to meet future demand. 1981 plan. Conservation is therefore clearly the fuel of first dependence. 1985 plan. Saved energy converts all New Jersey consumers into energy producers. I'm going to skip ahead a little bit. I think you get the idea. The 2015 plan, plan for action, promote cost-effective conservation and energy efficiency. So that theme has been with us since the beginning of energy policymaking here in New Jersey. Uh, at the same time, if you go look at some of the national, I'll call them scorecards that happen when uh, analysts look around the country at what states are doing what, New Jersey, according to the ACEEE, the American Council for Energy Efficiency Economy, has had New Jersey anywhere from in 10th, ranked 10th back in 07, and then in the most recent one, at least that I could find, had them 23rd in 2016. So for all these really, really correct, right ambitions in all these energy master plans over the years, what's different now? I'm coming into this thing, beside having a couple of cups of coffee before we, I started this thing, uh, very amped up, very psyched up about what's going to happen in New Jersey over the next few years. That's really my theme today. So, but why is 2018 different than all those very strongly stated ambitions over the last, geez, 35 years of saying this? Why is it now going to happen in 2018? Uh, you know, why is this night different from all other nights, I guess I would say? And uh, so why am I saying that we're going to have a different result now than we had in all those other iterations of policy, which really all said the same thing? And I do think it's different. Uh, I'm going to try and review quickly here what's different, because I think they're all combined together to change the game here in New Jersey. So it's now end of September 18. I think if you look back in one to three years, you're going to see a totally different uh, field of play here in New Jersey when it comes to the level of energy efficiency activity. So why is it different? I'm going to review six reasons why I think it's different and get into the weeds a little bit, a very little bit on each of them because I know it's really all about what the, the panelists have to say today. Reason number one, technology. We're in a different world. I'm not going to get into it in a lot of depth. Not only advances in the uh, appliances and equipment that use energy, lighting, motors, heating, cooling, are much more efficient. Um, so technology advances in the consumption of energy, advances in communication, smart appliances, connectivity through the internet, you know, your gr the grid talking to your air conditioner or your refrigerator is not very far away. We didn't have that 10, 20, 30 years ago. Changes in, te in technologies, battery storage, 
renewables, electric vehicles, which if they're managed the right way, also can benefit all customers. So number one, technology change. Number two, climate change. We didn't talk about that too much back then. It was out there. Now it's an imperative. I'm not going to again go into the weeds. Hopefully I'm speaking to the converted here in this room to say that this world, this country, this state, this locality, this individual all have to focus on reducing greenhouse gas emissions. Three, big change in the executive branch and the BPU, which is fully committed to improving our policies and our delivery of energy efficiency services in New Jersey. Uh, I was at their commitment is real. I've good example. I was at the board meeting earlier this week and I sat there as number one. They approved a couple of including New Jersey Natural, who's here today, approved another round of expanded energy efficiency offerings by the companies. They were up there and they put together after I think it's been about five, six months since the Energy Act was passed. They put out rules on net metering aggregation. They put out an RFP for 1,100 megawatts of offshore wind. And what was also interesting is they were very engaged, and I'm talking about the five commissioners. There were, who, for those who were there, there was a discussion up there about someone had brought to the agenda some uh, financial support for a large commercial customer. And there was a very active, very right on point discussion, and this was by commissioners, remember, about what level of incentive is right, whether you ought to provide incentives for low, to make low-hanging fruit that would have happened anyway. They were spot on with that. So to me, just that one snapshot speaks to what they're up to down in Trenton, uh, from the governor through President Fortaliso, right through all the staff who are really geared up for this. It's, it's not just in, on paper, it's happening live and in person down there. The fourth item is the Clean Energy Act, which I'm guessing 99.9% .9 of you in the room know all about. Uh, it's not platitudes. Uh, it's not uh, wishful goals. It's strong mandates inside a law in the state of New Jersey with real action items that have to occur at certain times and places. Uh, 2% reduction in uh, energy efficiency on the electric side, excuse me, 2% reductions in growth of energy use on the electric side, 0.75% on the natural gas side within five years, and the BPU mandated to do a study to find, I'm quoting, full economic cost-effective potential. So that 2%, that 0.75%, is really chapter one, and then whatever they find in these in these studies, uh, working with all of us, uh, will inform the future goals that we achieve as a state. Uh, the bill also has rewards and penalties for utilities to make and exceed these goals. Important, because uh, they utilities need to have their head in the game uh, in terms of being a pr uh, primary participant in making all this happen very clear language on how cost-benefit occurs. Uh, consumers need to be protected in this game. This isn't a blank check by any stretch of the imagination. 
the BPU and the uh, utilities and the other participants in the proceeding are under a mandate to conduct studies to make sure these things, these investments in New Jersey are truly worthwhile, have the right payback, and also importantly recognize the environmental value of these investments because of my item two, which is climate change. Uh, so they all get focused in on that with backing it all up by a strong measurement and verification program. Um, another item in the bill, utility cost recovery. I'm going to get into this uh, in the weeds a little bit on this uh, in a minute. But they get recovery through surcharges. They get to recognize the revenue impact of sales losses, which is important. And they can get a return on and of investment underneath these overall rewards and penalties and uh, recognizing rate of return issues and other consumer protections. Um, so that's item four. Uh, item five is culture change. And culture change to me is a big blanket, covers a lot of different people and organizations. I'm going to focus on two of them, culture change at utilities. Um, and I think we'll see this. You're going to see some of this culture change live and in person as soon as I get myself off the stage and the utility panelists come up to talk. You'll see what's happening in there right up, right up front and personal. Um, only utilities can connect with customers. They have the relationship with every electric and gas utility customer in the state. Uh, I'm out in the private sector. I sell consulting services. I need to be there face-to-face -face with my customer to talk about what's right and what's wrong. That's not only true of me. That's true of every other good and service in this economy. And the utilities, as the person on the point of that, have the ability to have that conversation with customers in a way that no one else can have about really investing in energy efficiency and providing support for that. Without that point of contact, uh, it's not going to happen in the way that I've been talking about. Um, I'm going to use a term that you don't use, I guess, in utility space, upselling, right? They're selling electrons. They're selling molecules of gas, but they need to be able to upsell the lighting, the heating, the cooling, the motors uh, that or incent the purchase of those things so all of this can happen. Um, so it's that customer relationship that needs to be harnessed to make this happen. There's a lot of talk, one of the kind of drama issues kind of inside Beltway BPU chat is who's going to run the Office of Clean Energy or the the energy efficiency programs? Will it be the Office of Clean Energy? Will it be the utilities? Uh, my take on that is there is a lot of drama about that, but when you really look at it structurally, right now the programs are actually delivered by third-party contractors. This is not underneath the supervision of people on the BPU staff. This is not about taking jobs away from BPU staff. This is about letting BPU staff focus on the stuff that's really important for a regulatory agency, which is making sure customers at the end of the day are always protected, making sure the policy is driven hard toward the goals, 
making sure there's fair competition out there. So to my way of thinking, moving the, I'll call it the ops, the operational elements of energy efficiency makes sense, not just because of the customer relationship I talked about, but also because now you've got the BPU staff really with their eyes on the prize and they can do the job that they were mandated to do. Uh, if you go down there, and I don't know how many of you spend time uh, at OCE, a lot of their time is spent as what I'll call contract administration. It's hard to administer contracts under the state government rubric, and they have to spend a lot of time doing that. The move I'm talking about frees them up to the, do the job uh, I think that they were meant to do. So unleashing the utilities uh, is important. The other element of that is making sure they, they, when they take these activities, they don't feel like they're losing money. There's a lot of arithmetic that goes underneath that. I'm not going to take up time on it. I will say that there's decoupling in uh, 29 states right now, including New South Jersey Gas and New Jersey Natural uh, here in New Jersey. So there's a lot to draw upon to understand how to design the specific accounting that goes underneath those programs. Point being that uh, no business is going to buy in and change the culture in the way I talked about unless they see that incentive that they're going to be able to tell their shareholders they didn't lose money by doing that. Um, the sixth item is full engagement. Very important that we kind of have all hands on deck to make this happen. Uh, that's all customers right across residential, commercial, industrial, low-income customers, and all hands on deck in the contractor community. One of the other dramatic areas of drama at the BPU is always our third-party contractors getting cut out of the deal by handing something more over to utilities. If the board manages that the right way, I don't see that happening. The utilities don't have a monopoly on technology ideas, uh, marketing, and they can very easily, and I've seen it in action in the utility filings that, that have come in front of the agency, can very easily incorporate third-party ESCOs and all sorts of other energy service and technology providers into their overall, into the overall program design. Uh, so they're, everyone's, it's a bigger pie and everyone's participating in it. And at the end of the day, customers are benefiting. So basically, I'm trying to, my six points are trying to get everybody to row in the same direction. I think the BPU knows all of this, which is why I'm enthused about all this happening. So I'll close by saying, let's get this show on the road. Thank you. can join us that'd be great also there are seats uh, scattered about and we brought in some additional ones as well 
um, for folks who are standing. If you like to stand, that's okay too. Check one. Now I have the real pleasure of introducing uh, co-founder of NJ Spotlight, uh, Tom Johnson, who I've known. Um, we worked together at the Star-Ledger for 10 years before uh, starting Spotlight uh, nine years ago, eight, eight or nine years ago. Uh, as most of you who follow him, he knows more about this stuff than, than anybody, uh, I think, and, and certainly has a perspective and, and context on where we've been and where we're going. And um, so it's a real pleasure to introduce him, and he'll be leading this panel discussion. I want to say two things. Uh, we, we like to have a, a somewhat of an interactive discussion around this, and we the way we do it is uh, via index cards, and at each of your tables is index card. If there's a question you want to ask to be incorporated into the discussion, uh, write it out and uh, wave it to one of us. We'll be wandering around mostly in the back, but on the sides, and we'll get it up to Tom um, to to uh, be yeah. part of as much as he can. We just often can't get to all of them, but uh, certainly we can do as much as we can. And then the other piece on your on your on? desk is, is, are also on your tables are also surveys, which we ask you to uh, please take time before you leave to fill out, let us know how we're doing, uh, what you thought worked, what didn't work at the event. Um, it's really how we learn on these things and, and continue to improve them. And uh, you know, even 50, 50 odd round tables in, we still get a lot of, uh, really valuable feedback from them. So we ask you to do that. You either can leave it on the table or there's also a box out at the uh, front table where you can leave them when you leave. So without further ado, I introduce Tom Johnson. Okay, uh, welcome everybody. Thanks, John. Uh, we're going to start off, but we're running a little bit late, so uh, I'm just going to give a quick introduction to everybody and let them speak and get the show on the road, as Steve said before. Thank you, Steve. That was very informative. First off, we're going to have Dave Daly. He's um, president and COO of uh, Public Service Electric and Gas, and I'm sure... Everybody in the room knows Dave. Dave? Good morning. Thank you very much, Tom. It's really a pleasure to be here. Um, and I just uh, a few opening remarks. Um, I like how Steve ended that. Let's get the show on the road. Um, I've met many people in this room, but perhaps not everybody. I've been with PSE&G almost 35 years, and about a year ago had the real honor of moving into the role I'm in now, leading this great company. I've had a great career here. One of the things about PSE&G is it's a company that really cares about its employees and cares about its role in the state. And we take our our, our role and our position in this state uh, very, very seriously. And it's a real honor to be here. Um, one of the things that I have really been focused on over the last year, if I think about my top priorities, of course, there's continuing to deliver reliable and resilient electric and gas service and to make sure the infrastructure is where we need it today and into the future. But the other is thinking about the future. And over the last year, with the help of actually many, many people in this room and some fantastic folks at PSG, I've spent a lot of time on energy efficiency. 
it's it's a fantastic uh, from the point of view of that everything we're thinking about is consistent with the governor's goals and the governor's platform and for for us that's very important um, that's part of our job is to help implement policy and our views on energy efficiency are completely aligned without any daylight with the governor's policy uh, and secondly the energy efficiency work that we're talking about is very aligned with what our customers are telling us the customers want to use less energy because they want to save money it is the number one issue for them that they need to save money and they want to use less they want to use clean they want to use green they need re reliable and resilient and so what we're doing is aligned with the policy of the state it's aligned with what our customers are telling us that caused us to spend you know really the last year very very intensely working on what is the opportunity to move the state from at this point kind of pulling up the rear in this country to moving the state to where it belongs which is out in front leading on energy efficiency and it is tremendous and I have learned so much um, this past year about it uh, about its ability to save money and to create jobs really quality jobs and to clean the environment and so um, we have developed that work we have a very good understanding um, as we took on this initiative we did it in a way that was answering this question what's the opportunity what is the full opportunity and it turns out that opportunity is very much in line with what's in the legislation that is about the opportunity which is huge and so we're ready to go and we've done this work um, one of the things we've done is develop a plan to implement it in partnership because there's so much uh, out to be to be done and uh, partnerships are going to be very very critical and so my my real desire right now is to take where we are today and figure out how to accelerate this move to implement these these energy efficiency programs to deliver these benefits and the question is there is a lot of work to be done Steve went through several of them in terms of the BPU's charge now that the legislation has passed but how can we work together to kickstart that because if we don't if we're not careful it's going to be 10 years before we start delivering these benefits we can spend forever talking about all of the things that need to be worked out and in the meantime these benefits aren't getting to del delivered my number one priority is let's accelerate let's step on the accelerator and start delivering these benefits so I look forward to the Q&A today and I'm very very thankful to be here thank you <clears throat> okay next up is Tom uh, Masaro he's senior vice president of, of uh, New Jersey Resources, Marketing, Customer Service, and Energy Efficiency. Tom? All right. Thanks so much, Tom. Uh, just to give a little background, I'm Senior Vice President of Marketing, Customer Service, and Energy Efficiency for New Jersey Natural Gas, which is the largest subsidiary of New Jersey Resources. So we serve over a half a million customers, primarily in Monmouth and Ocean Counties, parts of Middlesex, uh, Burlington, and Morris as well. And when I think about some of the earlier remarks, both from Steve and from Dave, our inflection point happened in 2006. And that's when we launched our Conserve to Preserve program. And that really helped us align the policies of the state, the interests of the customers, and the, and the needs that we had from a financial perspective to continue to provide safe and reliable service to our customers. 
And since that time, we hear our customers, like Dave said, we're in tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of homes every year, hearing what our customers need. And what that is, is safe, reliable, affordable, and clean energy. And we have been on that pursuit for over a decade now. And in that time, our CSRs, when you call into New Jersey Natural Gas, we're giving tips to customers, over two and a half million tips to customers to help them save energy, save money on their utility bills. And it really was a change in culture that Steve talked about. It is all throughout the organization from our marketing reps as they're helping to connect new customers to our systems, to our CSRs, to our customers themselves. We have over 20% of our customers that want an energy efficiency tip that we email to them every month. So the customers want affordable, clean, reliable, and safe energy, and we're in a position to do that. And since 2009, we launched our Save Green programs, and these are energy efficiency programs where we have been in the homes helping customers use less energy. Over 50,000 customers have partic participated in just that short amount of time. And when Dave is talking about creating jobs, We've had over 2,600 contractors participate in that program, and it's generated over $350 million of economic activity right inside our service territory. So when you look at the 50,000 jobs that were done, that is all work that's happening in Monmouth, Ocean, Morris County. So it is bringing it home. It's listening to customers and finding programs that they're looking forward to. We recently filed back in March and energy efficiency filing to continue our Save Green program and expand that. Just last Monday, we got it approved by the Board of Public Utilities. So it's a program that will expand what we're doing today and offer more programs for the low to uh, moderate income customers and to the commercial customers that are just not being addressed today. And as Steve mentioned, that is a great role for the utility where we have that connection to the customer we can personalize and tailor information to their specific needs. So I'm looking forward to the panel as well, to your questions and just engaging in this conversation. <clears throat> Next up, uh, Mary Barber. She's director of New Jersey Clean Energy for the Environmental Defense Fund. And she's been uh, very active here the last few years and is glad to see that this comes to fruition. Yeah. Thank you, Tom and uh, NJ Spotlight, for these great, this great event. Um, yes, yeah, so I'm the environmental voice, um, specifically um, looking at energy efficiency and the enormous potential for reducing carbon emissions and other harmful pollutions. And we have this great opportunity um, in New Jersey to really move this forward. Um, so as you know, we're hearing you can save, save, I mean, reduce emissions, but also save people money, save businesses money, boost job creation. Um, and one of the big things is it can also help to avoid and defer um, investments in large in transmission and distribution <coughs> infrastructure, which also is going to save customers money. Um, big picture, taken as a whole, the energy efficiency market in the U.S. could yield more than a trillion dollars in energy savings and more than 3.3 million jobs over 10 years. Buildings use 40% of all energy consumed in the U.S. today. So if we fully take advantage of the technologies um, that are available today, we can save billions of dollars in combined annual energy costs. Um, and again, for us, it's all about continuing to reduce carbon emissions um, and other harmful pollutions through this. 
So we were very involved um, in um, the recent legislation and are thrilled um, that, that New Jersey is back on track. We have a governor and administration that is moving forward with these things and legislation that is really putting us on track in so many different areas, including energy efficiency. So with the implementation of this bill, um, New Jersey residents and businesses will see savings of up to $200 million on the energy efficiency side. Um, and a drop in emissions equivalent to taking approximately 75,000 cars off the road each year. And scaling energy efficiency in the way that the bill envisions could more than triple the number of residents that are working in the sector from about 32,000 to more than 100,000 jobs. Um, the mandates that, like Steve was mentioning, the mandates that the uh, electric and gas utilities achieve all, that they achieve all cost-effective energy efficiency at a minimum of 2% and 0.75% energy savings respectively within five years. And those are goals that are now aligned with other leading states and are far more aggressive than anything we've seen in New Jersey to date. And as Steve also mentioned, there are other aspects of the bill that will make sure that, that, that the utilities are, are on track over the ramp up of five years to meet those, to meet those targets and including um, for the first time we're going to see performance incentives and penalties to, to help make sure we are really on track. So today, as mentioned, most of New Jersey's energy efficiency programs are administered and implemented by the BPU's clean energy program contracted companies. And then we have some utility-run programs that we've heard about. So the legislation changes the structure and puts responsibility for meeting these new aggressive targets directly on the utilities. And so the new law does permit the utilities to apply savings from non-utility programs like the clean energy program um, to achieve their targets. But the responsibility lies with the utilities, which means they need the authority and the flexibility to meet these targets in the most efficient, cost-effective way in order to maximize the benefits for all New Jersey residents and businesses. And the BPU must hold them accountable. <coughs> so to see where we need to go, let's talk about where we are. So in FY18, the New Jersey Clean Energy Program annual energy savings was 0.36%. And the CEP proposed um, to increase that to 0.62% over the next four years far below leading states, the national average, and far below the new clean energy um, targets. So based on the results, we can see that we need change um, and uh, to achieve these, these new targets. So, and to manage change, we want to do that in a responsible way, and we want to make sure that there's a fair and orderly transition to moving forward in a new programmatic structure where the utilities are accountable and held responsible. So we've been giving this a lot of thought and talking to other stakeholders and think that really a first step is to determine what is a comprehensive package of energy efficiency programs. What should that look like in order to get to these aggressive targets? And there are best practices. We, we, are, we, we have many places we can go to look for that. The package should be based on some core principles. So the programs should be aligned and coherent and to some degree consistent across the state 
And very importantly, as mentioned um, by Steve, I think, and some, consideration must be given to how best to ensure low-income customers are being served and have access. And we should be looking at what programs exist currently and what other innovative programs we need to develop to ensure that this customer base is well served. And so with the Clean Energy Act's aggressive goals and utility mandates, the board should set policy and provide oversight. The BPU leadership and their processes should set the overarching goals, the specific performance metrics, the measurement um, uh, evaluation, um, the performance rewards and penalties. The importance of providing strong oversight and policy direction for the implementation of these programs can't be overstated and can't be overestimated. And that is a great role for the BPU to play. So again, these are really exciting times. Environmental Defense Fund is really happy and proud to be part of this movement um, in New Jersey. And yeah, let's get the show on the road. <clears throat> okay, now uh, hear from the private sector. Adam Purcell, President and CEO of Lime Energy. Thanks, Tom. And thanks, uh, New Jersey Spotlight, for putting this together and for everybody being here. It's a very timely event. Uh, very, I can't imagine a more dynamic time in the energy efficiency industry in New Jersey. Um, I just want to start quickly uh, with, <laughs> thank you, with Lime Energy. Uh, we are a company that was born in New Jersey. We are headquartered in Newark. And uh, we are a, a leading national provider of energy efficiency in commercial buildings. We do that by working with utilities. Um, we work on behalf of utilities, touching their commercial customers uh, and working to develop energy efficiency upgrades in commercial buildings. We monetize the value on behalf of the customer of that energy efficiency to the utility, to the grid, to society. Uh, and that is what some people know as rebates or incentives. Some people look at it as subsidies. But what Lime Energy does is we help customers in commercial buildings capture the value of the energy efficiency and monetize it. So um, we uh, have developed a direct install program that is uh, innovative and results in unprecedented participation rates, customer satisfaction rates, uh, and realization rates, which really means uh, delivering cost-effective energy efficiency. Uh, we're an innovation company primarily uh, starting a decade ago. We were very innovative in attacking small businesses. Uh, we, we were innovative with LED lighting technology and now with non-lighting measures. Uh, we've been innovated with actually measuring the savings from the projects, um, which is, allows us to do an energy efficiency as a service offering for the customer and a pay-for-performance offering for the utility. Um, just a little bit on the uh, potential, and Mary laid out the potential for energy efficiency. Um, the, we've really scratched the surface in New Jersey, despite some very good efforts over the years. We, uh, I would say that the majority of commercial buildings in New Jersey waste 20 or 30 percent of the energy that they use and that means that just based on available technology and some of this available technology was invented yesterday so you can't really blame folks but what is available allows us to reduce the energy consumption in new jersey buildings by probably 20 to 30 percent um, and the two percent target is a significant ramp as mary laid out but the industry is prepared to deliver it it's being delivered in other states being delivered in adjacent states uh, and there is representation in the room from folks uh, that represent companies that have the, the horsepower uh, to, to make that ramp happen uh, and deliver. Um, I, I'm, 
in the context of those on the panel, you know, energy efficiency in particular within the clean energy space, uh, sometimes it's talked about as the low hanging fruit and then therefore it's so easy, why, why does it need our help? Sometimes it's just not as iconic as something you can see like renewable power generation. Uh, but from the perspective of, for example, if you are concerned with the environment, clean air, and a, and a transition to renewable energy, uh, energy efficiency is the, is the key to all of that, right? Energy efficiency is the most cost-effective means to reduce the energy requirements to facilitate a high percentage of electricity being generated by renewables, right? That's better than just saying, we are going to make really, really clean electrons so that people can run it through really old lighting fixtures and HVAC equipment. That's not uh, a responsible way to do it. From the perspective of the consumer, and we'll hear about that after I speak, um, energy efficiency dramatically reduces energy bills for the participants, for sure, because it dramatically reduces their energy consumption. But it reduces the energy rates by targeting uh, peak demand and offsetting investments in, in transmission and distribution infrastructure. Study after study has proven this. Implementation of 2 and 3% targets have, have demonstrated this. So uh, again, I would reiterate the idea of making and, and regulating cheap electricity so that people can run it through really old equipment and waste that is not a strategy uh, for New Jersey businesses. In terms of the businesses and how they benefit, um, there's other benefits. You get a, a better facility that's perhaps better lit, more comfortable, you get better control over your facility, higher productivity from your employees, right? So we're doing that every day with energy efficiency. And low rates don't do any of that. Um, I would also say that uh, the economic development benefits of energy efficiency are disproportionate. Um, it is necessarily labor intensive. The jobs are necessarily local. And uh, there are 2 million jobs in energy efficiency today in the United States. And there are three jobs per every thousand people in the state of New Jersey in energy efficiency. Uh, in Massachusetts, there are 11. Uh, in Connecticut, there are nine. And in New York, there are six. So as a state, we can do better, right? We should have that as our, as our target. Uh, just a couple comments on the, the legislation that's been talked about quite a bit, and as it relates particularly to the delivery of energy efficiency programs, um, Lime Energy feels strongly that uh, energy uh, efficiency programs are better administered by the utility. They have a customer relationship, a billing relationship, a brand, uh, and, it, and it helps energy efficiency providers and ultimately regulators to make sure that these programs are being uh, maximized. Um, it, as uh, in an article published just this week, the, C, the chairman of PSE&G uh, mentioned that I, I hope I don't get the quote wrong. I've, I'll say I'm paraphrasing him in saying that energy efficiency must be the most important priority of the utility of the future. Lime Energy believes this. We're working with utilities across the country in, in helping them with that transition to the future. And, uh, and we, we again believe that they're best suited to, to uh, deliver those benefits to their customer, to stop simply being a throughput company and, and just selling uh, kilowatt hours to their customers or therms. And uh, we're, we're very anxious to get to work back here in our home state on bringing some of those best practices to bear with the, with the IOUs. Uh, next up, Stephanie Brain, Director, Division of Rate Council. Thanks, Tom. Um, I'm sure a lot of you know who I am, but just in case you don't, the Division of Rate Council is the state agency mandated by the legislature to represent customers, ratepayers, 
in all proceedings that impact any programs to be approved by the BPU or any rate that is charged to, to those customers. And I, I guess I want to start off by agreeing with some of what, what uh, everyone has said today, which is that we're in a new age. Energy efficiency, we have long said, is the best fuel source we have. It is, it is absolutely um, something that can save customers money, that can help us uh, prevent having to build new large um, generation facilities, new large transmission facilities. Uh, but I do think that there are some sort of bubbles that I need to burst a little bit in, in, in my remarks. First of all, I think there's a very clear reason why our state has gone from 10th to 23rd in, in ACEEE ratings. And that is because not PSNG and not New Jersey natural gas, but some of our state's utilities have absolutely no appetite to do energy efficiency. And this is not just because they don't, they want decoupling, things like that. They're just not interested in, in that's not part of their business plan. And our second largest utility in the state has done nothing. And this is, this is part of why we are falling behind. The best thing about this new legislation is that it includes a mandate. It requires all the utilities to do energy efficiency. And frankly, it's the, it's the best and only way that we are actually going to have full participation from all the utilities in the state, not just the ones who have, who have found great ways to, to make money on it, but for all the utilities in the state. And that is, that is a huge step forward, and this legislation does that for the first time in New Jersey, and, it, and, and that is probably the best thing about the statute. Um, Another big change was accountability. So the utilities, we've done this before. I, I don't know how many people in the room remember, I'm sure Steve remembers, um, but I don't know how many of you remember that we did have a period of time when the utilities were doing energy efficiency, and it was a failure. And I'm hoping it will be different now, but that is why we have the SBC, that is why we have the Office of Clean Energy, and so we need to not just ignore the past, we need to learn from the past. I, I am a little disappointed that I don't see anyone from the Office of Clean Energy in this room. Um, I, see, I see some people from the BPU, but no one from, from OCE. Um, and if you're here, I'm sorry, I apologize. Um, but the fact is that they do an excellent job. They do a terrific job. And, and I, I kind of need to burst a bubble here. Um, I know that the utilities are in everyone's home, but that doesn't mean everyone trusts the utilities. There are many people, our office receives letters and emails and calls every day begging us to intervene and, and protect them um, in terms of the utilities. People don't all love you, I'm sorry. And the fact is that having the BPU in there and having uh, someone who's, whose job, I mean, being perfectly honest, and I, and, I, and I don't begrudge any utility of, of this, but their number one priority is to their shareholders. And that's just the fact. Whereas for the BPU, for our office, for elected officials, their number one priority are the, are the, the citizens of the state. So one of the things I want to stop doing is talking about how we're going to pay the utilities for this, because that shouldn't be our number one priority. Our number one priority needs to be how do we serve the people of New Jersey? And if we are, end up paying the utilities, they already get their full weighted average cost of capital or an opportunity to earn their full weighted cost of capital on these, on these programs. 
Um, information that that uh, that I've seen suggests that maybe they're not making their full weighted cost of capital on it, but they're still making about five or six percent, which for a lot of people in this economy is 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 a nice return. Um, they are also in uh, under this bill. If they do a, a really good job, they're going to get performance incentives, and then to put on top of that some some evidence of uh, an ability to ask for lost revenues, and the, the statute does not guarantee it. It only allows them to ask for it. And in the past, what we found, because they've actually been allowed to ask for it for a long time, is that they can't demonstrate any lost revenues, because the fact is they're not losing revenues. Now, maybe when they do more energy efficiency, they will start to, but at the same time, we're going to be electrifying our transportation se um, sector. We're going to be doing a lot of things that transitions our, um, our system uh, to, in many ways, use more electricity. So if we're going to start complaining that, oh, they're losing revenue by doing energy efficiency, let's look at all the other things that are going to increase their revenue. Um, and if you're going to start, if you're going to cut out OCE from the, from the pro and, and, and hand it all over to the utilities, well, then the societal benefits charge has to get cut in half. These are things that, you know, it, I, there is absolutely no doubt in my mind that climate change is probably our number one problem that we have to attack now. But it's a shared problem, and it's one where everybody, every, everybody in every sector that works in this, in this field has to make a sacrifice. And that not, if, I, if I got up here and said, ratepayers will do uh, clean energy as long as it doesn't cost them a penny, you would say that was a ridiculous position to take and I'm not looking at the full picture. Well, I say that back to the utilities. Maybe making 6% is okay if you're doing something like energy efficiency. And maybe not every penny that you spend um, has to go back to shareholders. And maybe, maybe it's a shared sacrifice that as long as you're getting paid fairly and you're, you are earning a return, maybe that's, um, that's what the priority has to be. If we hand this all over to the utilities, I'm concerned that once again, the shareholder needs and the and the bottom line is going to become the priority, and not necessarily bringing the best um, options to to the the ratepayers. We see right now that the programs when when utilities come in with programs, usually about a half to two thirds of them uh, satisfy cost benefit analysis, and the rest don't. And what we, the system we have right now, it means we do the ones that are the best. We do the ones that are able to, to pass the cost-benefit analysis. I don't want to go to a system where we're just throwing money at the problem and ratepayers aren't getting the benefit of the value, even, even if it means that the utilities make a little bit less money on doing it. Okay. <clears throat> okay, Stephanie, thanks. And when we... Uh ask our panelists to sort of uh, touch on that subject. It's the first question I got uh, from the audience. Can we, uh, how do you, uh, can you achieve energy, the targeted energy efficiency goals without decoupling? Uh, want, somebody want to jump in? When they, either Dan or David, uh, Tom? So as I'm, so as I mentioned, we've had our conservation incentive program in place for over a decade now. And if anyone has walked into our offices in Wall Township, New Jersey, you'll see our seven commitments to stakeholders. And the seventh one is superior return. 
The first one is safe and reliable service. Second is customer service. And then on down, value employees, quality, and so forth. So yes, we do earn a return on our energy efficiency programs. When you look at our commitment to stakeholders, that superior return is number seven. So saying that we're doing energy efficiency for our shareholders before our customers, I would say that that is not in the culture at uh, New Jersey Resources. You know, it's kind of balanced across all of the uh, commitments. And when we're working with customers to connect appliances, that is the time that you want them to put high efficiency equipment in the home because you're losing that opportunity of water heater, you're losing it 10 years, furnace, air conditioner, you're losing it for 15 years. So you could have the best incentives out there. And, and you know, I'm talking from experience of signing the on-bill repayment programs as they're being uh, working through our, uh, our processing payment. Customers are as interested as changing a furnace, you know, in their basement that they're not going to see. That is not a top priority versus other needs that they have inside, you know, just their daily disposable income, where that's gonna go. And that's where energy efficiency programs are important. The marketing of energy efficiency programs are important. And a number of panelists have brought up, that is the role that the utility can have to bring these programs to market, to help us achieve the policy goals of the state and finding the right financial mechanism to put into place so that you can continue to reinvest in your system to provide safe, reliable, affordable, and clean energy to our customers. And it's that balance of being able to do the two that we've demonstrated. We've been able to do that since 2006. That answer is out there, and it's a matter of finding the right way to do that throughout the other utilities in the state. Uh, Dave, then Dan, uh, Mary. Yeah, and I, um, uh, it's interesting that you, the, the way you said that, the, at PSENG, we have safety as our number one priority. And what we say is that, uh, and this culture is pervasive throughout our organization, that safety comes before profits and productivity. And, and we walk that talk every day. We make decisions all the time that put safety um, ahead of profits and productivity. And we also have a commitment to customer service. And I do, I do think that I would not describe our culture um, quite the way you said it, Stephanie. I, I understand what you were saying there about how we balance things, but we do have a core commitment, we call it, to customer service. And I spend so much time focused, as does my organization, on delivering to our customers. And that commitment is talking about hearing our customers, respecting our customers, asking them, what else can we do for you? So, so. Um, you know, with regard to where we go from here, it, it ties a little bit back to my opening comments that I, I see, and I think we're all aligned around this huge opportunity to bring savings to customers, but there's work to be done. It's been delegated or assigned to the BPU to, to work through, starting with, you know, let's resize and validate the size of the opportunity, which gets to how much investment do we need to make um, there's the, the issues of incentives and penalties and um, a number of other issues in the legislation. And I, as I look at those, I just think that what we need to do is start working on it together and collaborate and start working through these issues. And I think the best way to get progress is to, let's be specific, um, 
program one, program two, we've identified 22 programs uh, in energy efficiency, electric and gas, from low income, uh, multifamily seniors, all the way up to small businesses, et cetera, 22 different programs. And we've really put a lot of detail behind them. And um, we think we understand how much needs to be investment, invested to capture this opportunity. I think it's very consistent with what the legislation came up with. And when we do validate that, we'll come up with an answer about the same. But then you get into these the, the, the weeds of how do we work through the penalties and the incentives. And uh, PSE&G is very much about execution. That's part of our blocking and tackling. And we're very good at executing. And so we're willing to engage in those discussions. But I think we need to begin that process and really ask ourselves, how do we step on the, on the gas? And uh, maybe not the best way to say it. Uh, how do we step on the pedal of my, I have, a, I have an, uh, uh, a Volt, a Chevy Volt, so I got a hybrid. How do we step on the pedal of that electric vehicle to get that thing going? Because, and that's where we'll work through these issues. Because sitting over there is this pot of gold, of savings, of jobs, our estimate of the number of jobs that would be created by the program that we've developed. And again, our program is very much sized to about 2% electric and about a percent of gas, a little bit less than a percent of gas, so very much aligned. And our estimate is that that will create five to 6,000 jobs per year for the next five or six years, because we, we're, we're thinking about a five or six year program. Um, and it will reduce carbon by 40 million tons and tremendous reductions in SOx and NOx as well. So it's sitting there and there's these complicated issues because when you start talking about penalties and incentives, a lot of people have interest. And then who gets to participate? This question of the Office of Clean Energy versus all the strategic partners. Our view is that we need to do this in partnership with all the stakeholders. And these are tough issues and we just got to get in the room and start hashing them out. Because as I said in the beginning, we'll be sitting here a year from now or two years from now or five years from now and not having worked through these issues. So we, we kind of got to work these things in parallel so we can start to deliver them. And we're willing to get in the room and talk about it. And, um, and we're interested in, in serving the customer. Our customer commitment, our core commitment to customer service is right at the top, just behind delivering safely. So can you repeat the question again? Can you just read that decoupling question again? Can we, can, can we achieve the targeted energy efficiency goals without decoupling? So, um, yes. And probably not as easily, not as quickly, um, and not as certainly, I would add. So, yeah, do we, do, we could, you can, but the bottom line is, until, and it's not just related to energy efficiency. We've got all the distributed energy resources that are coming with the more technology. It's not just solar. It's the whole framing of, of what the technology is enabling. And, and so, so our position is it, it is really the better direction to, to cut that link that is driving the utilities to be simply focused on sales. Um, because if, if we don't, and I hear you about the electrification piece, Stephanie, I hear that. We're gonna, we're, they're going to start getting more sales through that. Um, 
But that, and I haven't thought that through a lot, but that might be another, that might actually make more of an argument. We don't want it to be all about sales. We have to break that because in the efficiency case, um, you could have utilities running programs without decoupling, um, but their bottom line is that throughput incentive. And so they still, so you can see on paper what looks like a great program, and maybe in some respects it is, but over here, right? So they might be doing good efficiency over here, but over here, it's all about driving more sales. So, so, so I'll leave it at that. Okay, but what, uh, Steve wanted to jump in and then, Adam, I'm sorry. Yeah, thanks, Tom. Real quick, just on the decoupling question that was raised. Uh, the way a properly designed decoupling program works is it recognizes reductions in sales, and there's no question energy, energy efficiency reduces sales. Every business in this country makes their money by selling more of their stuff, whatever it might be. And that has to be disconnected if you want the utilities to sell less of their stuff. So the decoupling pro programs, that if you look around the country, including New Jersey, Nat, and South Jersey, are symmetric, really going to Stephanie's important point about, well, what if all these efficiencies happen with these customers, but growth increases for a bunch of other customers, whether it's EVs, 10 new data centers coming to the territory or any reason, the decoupling accounting picks up both of those. So the customer's pockets aren't picked through this. It's very balanced. There's also usually a rate of return evaluation that accompanies the decoupling accounting. So the idea isn't to move away from the important customer protections that are inside basic utility rate making those are maintained. All you're doing is realigning the incentives. And in fact, if sales growth increases overall on a net net basis, customer rates are going to go down. So it's a balanced approach. Again, there's a billion and one design issues that'll happen at the BPU when these get hashed out as happened with New Jersey Natural, I guess, 10 years ago or so. Um, but it's all very doable and we'll put everyone rowing in the same direction. Tom, if I could just make a couple of quick questions. I think Stephanie's itching to get in on decoupling. And I just, um, from the perspective of a company that works with 15 of the top 20 utilities in the nation, who, some of whom have decoupling, some of whom don't, uh, some of whom do very well uh, according to their regulators because they get lost revenue recovery, and many of whom don't. Um, I'll, I will say that uh, the... I first of all agree with Stephanie what she said earlier. There, there are certainly uh, utilities that are not embracing this enough in New Jersey, and and and, uh, and and they're not embracing it elsewhere. That's a challenge for us. Um, but we, when you look at the idea that uh, there, for example, the, the calls that come into BPU for customer service, I would argue that those are that problem is exacerbated in New Jersey because the utilities don't run broad energy efficiency programs. Our experience in other places is that customer satisfaction increases uh, linearly and proportionately with the energy efficiency goal that utilities deliver. Uh, JD Power rankings increase with more energy efficiency delivered by the utility. Uh, and that the, the uh, net promoter scores increase. And I just would, I would also say that the premise that um, uh, responsibility to shareholders and um, 
and, cu and customer service are mutually exclusive. I mean, uh, Amazon's primary responsibility is to their shareholders, right? And they also have one of the highest net promoter scores in the industry. Um, and and e even Steve said, I mean, it's difficult, and it is a difficult problem to solve for regulators. It's difficult because companies make money by selling more. Well, Amazon makes returning something for full credit as easy as any company ever has, right? So they give back sales. More in, they make it more convenient than anybody, and the result is people buy more stuff from them. So it's not mutually exclusive, and what we've seen in other places is that that customers, uh, that uh, utilities, customer satisfaction ratings, net promoter scores are driven up by the, their deployment of energy efficiency programs. No one said um, that customer service and, and loyalty to the shareholders are, are mutually exclusive. However, these are monopolies. We are not talking about Amazon. We are not talking even about Lime Energy, who's probably in a competitive industry. What you're talking about doing, if we move all energy efficiency to the utilities, is that for the customer, you only have one place to go. Okay? These are monopolies. And this is why we need regulations. This is why we need the BPU, frankly. We need, we need those clean energy, Office of Clean Energy programs, so that customers have a choice. If they don't trust JCP&L or whatever, then they have somewhere else they can go and still do energy efficiency. So, so and wait, let me, let, me, let me finish. Secondly, we are doing exactly what I said in my opening remarks, we have to stop doing, okay? The entire energy efficiency discussion cannot be about how are we gonna pay the utilities. Amen. This is crazy. This is why nothing's happened. And the fact is, the utilities are fine. Believe me, I see their books. We're in the middle of rate cases with several utilities right now. They're fine. And then, the, I, you know, I do want to give some props to New Jersey Natural because I don't want to appear to be, or PSC&J, I don't want to appear to be um, criticizing your programs. You do terrific programs. The New Jersey Natural, it's not really decoupling in the way that it's been proposed by other people. The New Jersey Natural program is very, very different. In that program, they agreed to that their shareholders would take the risk. They initially do these programs with shareholder money, and then they have an opportunity to come back and show what specific uh, benefits they've brought through those programs, and then they get some money back through the BGSS process, by the, which we pay for gas. That is a very different thing than the decoupling pr pr uh, proposals that we've seen, where, it's, where what's been proposed is simply you do some math. The, here, here's, here's the energy savings we achieved, and let's, let's do the calculation, give us that money. That's a very different thing. It transfers the risk to the, to the ratepayers who have no other options. It's a monopoly. We're t we, we will be monopolizing energy efficiency if we do this. All of these companies that do this work will be beholden to the utilities to get the work. And this is, a, this is a really serious issue that we all have to grapple with and whether we want that to be our energy efficiency for future. So Mary. just, Stephanie, just, we were responding to the question from Tom about decoupling. So I understand, I don't, I mean, but I, we're, it's 20 to 10 now. Okay, so I just want to go back to, I think, one of the first things I said in my comments, which I think the initial approach should really be looking at what is an uh, appropriate, comprehensive package of energy efficiency programs in the state of New Jersey. That's the way we should start. 
big picture, what are good programs and what do we need? And then from there, work into what is the best structure for, for achieving the savings through these comprehensive programs. Um, and see where it leads based on what we have and what we know. And I would also just want to add, the BPU and conceivably the Office of Clean Energy is hugely important. They, as I also said, that's the entity, that's who is going to hold the, if it is the utilities, that's who holds the utilities feet to the fire in the same way they do regulatorily for other things. That's, that's an amazing role that, that should be developed and built um, for them to provide the policy direction, the oversight, and holding the feet to the fire. Okay, uh, Stephanie brought up a good point about we're running out of time. <laughs> I get, and I got a ton of questions and I haven't asked many, uh, any of my own. Uh, what, what do you people see as um, the best initial steps to start kickstarting the program? Dave talked about we can't come, uh, we have to move quickly because, or otherwise it's going to be five years later and we're still where we are. What should be done? What should the state be focusing on? What should they be telling the utilities to do? What should the private sector? Where can the savings be achieved to start beginning to see the kind of reductions envisioned by the legislation? Well, I'll be quick and say we need to start where Mary just said we need to start. We need to start by figuring out what are effective programs? We do have a situation where, because in one service territory, nothing's been done on the electric side for a long time. We have gas companies trying to do the work there because they're they are in that service territory. It's not necessarily the best fit. We need to sit down, figure out what are programs that will work, what will they achieve, how can they be achieved, and then we also need to figure out, um, you know, who who can do what. How do we do a cost-benefit analysis? How do we do measurement and verification afterwards to make sure that the programs are actually achieving what they can achieve? We need to focus on the substance. Adam, what, what, what's the low-lying fruit that hasn't yeah. been uh, plucked? Well, there, uh, as Stephanie said, I mean, there are territories that have been underserved. There are vertical markets that have been underserved. I, and, and I think that, you know, looking at the programs that have been run by the Office of Clean Energy and kind of taking a vertical market or customer segment uh, approach to finding areas that are, that are the most ripe and then moving quickly on them. I mean, the reality is companies like Lime Energy and others in the room need to be hiring. That's when we're moving towards getting energy efficiency. We need to be investing in the state. And we're not going to do that until we get a signal from the utilities that could be an RFP, it could be an RFI, it could be an RFQ uh, that is asking for that help. And I, I would think that on the inside of the utility, they need to be staffing up to be able to do that. I mean, if we look at the places where utilities are delivering 2% uh, of energy efficiency, and we look at the kind of staff they have and the kind of uh, people that they've given contracts to to deliver it, we're just, we're just far away from that today. And, and we need, so I would say looking at something that's complementary to what the Office of Clean Energy is doing and then factoring a period of probably the next 24 months when both are doing all, all that they can given, given where they are uh, is, is how we ramp to 2%. And I think it's following up to what Mary said about the structure and getting that right. Tom, I would frame it a little bit differently with the utilities in the room rather than 
telling the utilities what to do, have it be a more collaborative process of the contractors, rate council, the Board of Public Utilities, the other stakeholders in the room saying, here are the best practices, here's what we want to achieve, and then what are the best structure, the roles, and the responsibility of all the agencies in order to get to that, you know, to that path. And, and as you mentioned, it's going to be a transition to get there. This is, I know the legislation has targets out there. The programs that we got approved last Monday will put us in line to hit the 0.75 target that's out there for natural gas utilities. When we talk about the targets, they're also not set in stone targets. They are floors, right? And they uh, can be set based on what has been achieved in some of the areas for the utilities that have been doing this for many years versus those service territories where there hasn't been any activity. And there's probably a greater opportunity for savings because of things that have not occurred over the last decade or so. But it needs to be a collaborative process, a thoughtful process, and a transition to whatever that end state is. Uh, Dave, what, what about public service? Uh, there's a lot of uh, rumors about you guys are get ready to put in a big filing. Uh, how soon is that going to happen? And how do you align that with what uh, the legislation uh, suggests, even though the rules haven't been uh, proposed yet? Right. I think uh, so. We have developed a proposal that we're going to put in in the next week or so. And it will propose programs that are consistent with the legislative targets, um, both electric and gas. And they involve these 22 programs. When we talk about, you know, what is a good program, um, they have, I've, and you all have taught me many things over the last year, but all of the cost-benefit tests, the one I like the best is the TRC. Um, it has the true cost. It has all the costs. It has the benefits. These programs have, um, in the entire aggregate, have a score of greater than 1.0. Individual programs have scores much higher than that. So, you know, we know and are very, very confident that these programs have tremendous cost benefits, and um, we've done very specific work on it. So we'll put that in. And, you know, I just get back to what was said. I, I agree 100%. We've had probably 50 or 60 meetings with various uh, stakeholders reviewing our, our plans. And I think we should just put a stake in the ground that says, let's go all get in a room and hash through these issues. Because I, I think these programs are very specific. We've done all the work. Um, and the challenge that we have, what I hear often is that, yeah, but we first have to do the study to make sure that the targets were right. And we got to work through the issues on how the incentives and the penalties work. And we got to sort out the role of the Office of Clean Energy. And I agree 100% with all of that. Um, we're going to put this filing in, as I said, probably next week. Um, and what I would like to do is, um, I think the best way to work through those issues is to be saying, how would, how would I think about incentives, incentives and penalties? Or how would I think about the Office of, of Clean Energy when you have a very specific proposal in front of you that is sized properly to, uh, to the legislation versus just talking about those things in the abstract? And so I recognize the challenge of, of working through these things, but that's why I keep coming back to, I think we need a process. We're all in the room. 
working together. PSENG is very interested in collaboration as we sort through these issues. We'll put our work on the table as something that we can bounce things off. And we're very flexible. Um, I have tremendous respect for you, Stephanie, and for the, all the stakeholders in this process. And we'll pass through the issues. That, to me, is what we need to do to jumpstart this. And, um, you know, I would really look forward to doing that. Put a stake in the ground. Says we need to start. We need to resolve these issues in the next X number of months so that we can start delivering. And, um, and we do it collaboratively. One quick comment on that. And, Dave, um, we're excited <coughs> that you, you guys are putting that filing out there that achieves the entire goal. A caution lesson learned from New York State in the last few years is don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. So, I mean, the most crucial thing to even to the ramp up of programs under PSENG is the continuity of programs currently being run under OCE. The argument for that is that no matter who runs it, if, if OCE ran all the programs or PSEG ran all the programs, there the, what lies under that is this is, is program administrators, program consultants, program auditors, program contractors, trained electricians, and that's up and running under OCE and is critically important to the state. However this shakes out in the end, those same people are going to be important. And in New York State, with the, when REV was introduced, they kind of chopped down the old programs while they worked on designing the new ones. So I would just caution that the ramp is steep now, and it'll get a lot steeper if, if we throw the baby out with the bathwater. Yeah, and I, I, you know, I feel like the guy, do you ever see those commercials? It's for some insurance company, I think, where Michael Key goes and translates what everybody just said. And, and yeah, I feel like that here because the fact <laughs> of the matter is, um, you know, with all due respect to PSE&G, they're going to file a multi-billion dollar program. The minute they do that, it's under a 180-day deadline. None of these discussions are going to be able to happen because there are, frankly, a limited number of people in the BPU, in rate council, um, and and if we have to process a multi-billion dollar uh, application within six months on top of the PSE&G rate case, the, the nuclear subsidies, the Energy Strong 2, uh, those are just PSE&G's filings. There's other companies that we also have to process their filings. Then there's not going to be any time for anybody to have the, the really thoughtful discussions that Mary was laying out before. And and I you know it's it's unfortunate, but it's the reality. Well, that sort of uh, leads into a question I got from the audience that says the legislation has taken significant dollars to pay for things other than energy efficiency. And it not only has taken limited resources, it's taken limited resources in terms of staff and attention. There's a lot on uh, the Board of Public Utilities plate right now. And is energy efficiency going to get lost given that they, uh, they've got a proceeding for nuclear subsidies already underway? Uh, a new, uh, there's all these filings still going on. We're going to have uh, the state uh, looking at the cost of offshore wind uh, through next, uh, beginning next July. Uh, what about that? Uh, should the state sort of put a halt on some of these other things and say, hey, we first, everybody says energy efficiency is the top priority. Steve mentioned it. It goes back to 1978. 
but it seems to be slipping between the cracks here uh, with everything else on their plate. Right. Well, I would argue that it, it does need to be sequential. I, I don't think BPU is, is putting this on a back burner at all. In fact, uh, I recently was talking to the new head of the Office of Clean Energy, and he's gotten what I think is one of the best staff people at BPU back in clean energy to work on energy efficiency, right? So, so BPU's not putting this on a back burner at all. But they only have so many people. And if a, if a multi-billion dollar filing comes in, they have to handle it. My office, we don't, we don't govern our own docket. If I had all the time in the world, I would s spend my time sitting with Mary figuring out how to do this. I don't, and, and all of you, I'm sorry, not just Mary. But, but, um, <laughs> but we've done it before, okay? This, this is in part how this, this bill came to be. Um, and, and so we, we want to do it all. We want to do all of that. But the problem is when a, when a filing comes in that has a statutory deadline, you drop everything else and you meet that deadline. There's no, we don't have discretion to not do that. Anybody else? Okay. Uh, what about, um, what are the biggest obstacles uh, is facing the state in moving this program forward? A lot of that becomes awareness, the marketing, the education of consumers. Again, bringing energy to the forefront. I mean, one of the blessings and curses of low energy costs uh, is the fact that energy efficiency is a portion of disposable income. For most folks, it has dropped over the last decade. But for those that need the assistance the most, it has grown. And that's the population that is often underserved and gets lost in these conversations. So keeping a focus, one, on that broader education of the programs, the incentives, the monetization, as Adam put it, of the general programs, getting that out there, but then linking the assistance programs for energy efficiency to the other areas of assistance that are out there throughout the state. And that's one of the things that we were able to include in the filing that just got approved uh, last Monday is to tie energy assistance programs in through you know, local food banks, as an example. So there are people that are going there to get the basic needs, that they have the same opportunity for energy efficiency, energy conservation, special programs, incentives, discounted costs for that most vulnerable of our populations. And again, we operate in Monmouth and Ocean Counties. And there is still a high percentage of people in those areas that need our assistance and not turning our back and focusing, you know, on these other areas and really keeping that population right up front. So that's one of the things I think it's the awareness, the marketing and working with other partners to let people know that this assistance is out there, you know, for that one subset, but for others that these rebates, incentives, and other opportunities, whether it's on bill, you know, the last plug I'll do, our on bill repayment program doesn't rely on a traditional credit mechanism. So we're not looking at credit scores or debt to income ratios. It's in your ability to pay your natural gas bill. And most customers, they focus on paying their utility bills and they wanna keep the lights on and their water warm and their house heated. So our own bill repayment programs, that's what it focuses on, not on credit scores. So if you can pay your gas bill, you haven't been in bankruptcy, we're working with you to get energy efficiency equipment means into your homes. And I said it was my last, that was my next to last. And offering programs that are simple, less cost-effective things than having to change out a furnace and air conditioner and making those um, 
things like through a marketplace they're going to be offering, you know, have programs that are available for uh, that population and make it easy for people. You know, as Adam mentioned with uh, Amazon, the reason we all buy from Amazon, they make it easy to buy and return things. Make it that same kind of transition for a utility, you know, introduce that into the processes, the people and the technology of a regulated utility, you know, get us, get us to operate like that and bring these uh, products to market. Yeah, I would just say I love the emphasis on low income and, and communities and, and uh, people that, that um, are, don't easily always access or we're not always there for them. So I think that's great. That's big. Obviously, I think this administrative structure, um, we've, we've got to get in a room and like get this figured out. I mean, we've got to do that. We've got to do it fast. Um, because as, as you've said, Dave, a lot, you know, otherwise there's so much opportunity here for everyone, for everyone in the state of New Jersey to benefit from this and the environment. Um, and so we have to do that. I would echo what Tom said. And I think that you could summarize uh, the biggest challenge to meeting this goal by the fact that everyone in New Jersey that cares about energy efficiency is in this room. Um, the reality is when you're touching customers, whether it's residential or particular small business, it's just not on their radar. Uh, if for all the success we've had in driving high participation rates, we have 50% of customers saying no to an 18 month payback. That's an 18 month payback to upgrade their facility, right? So this is a no brainer investment. Half the people are saying no. I, I, I think that ease of participation has demonstrated that it's actually even more important than high incentives. We have actually taken programs where we have lowered the incentive and offered essentially on-bill financing efficiency as a service with a, with a performance that measures the savings of the project and it dramatically increases participation. So the business model of how energy efficiency is, how customers are engaged around energy efficiency is critically important to, to, uh, to success and the biggest challenge. Yeah, I agree. I, I want to say that I think your on-bill financing programs are awesome. I really do. And I and I think those are that is something that we want to that we need to focus on. I do also agree that low and moderate income uh, customers need to be reached. There, uh, you know, a large lot of the largest companies have already done their own energy efficiency, and I think that's that's terrific. But um, you know, shutoffs are up, and uh, affordability is a real issue, it's especially for people. We, you know, we've been lucky; we've had low natural gas prices, but that may not stay that way. And there are also many other things we want to pay for. We want to do solar. We want to do wind. We want to do all of these things. So EE is not the only. Um, thing that they're, that repairs are going to end up having to pay for. So we do want to do it right. Um, if there's a if you have a portfolio of programs that achieves a, a one on the on the total resource uh, test and several of them that are way over one, that means there are several of them that are way under one. So let's focus on the ones that are way over one. Let's focus on the ones that are cost effective and accessible. And I I do agree on the financing things like that and and really getting true value to the ratepayers. Should there be a, a specific target set for low and moderate income populations? Because many people have argued that they've been paying into the societal benefit charge for years, but they're not the ones who are putting solar on their homes or get uh, reaping a lot of the benefits of uh, the energy efficiency programs that have been offered by the state. I don't know if you need a specific target just for low and moderate income, but you need to have programs that are aimed at them. Anybody else? I agree 100%. The, um, and the portfolio I described does have a very robust uh, set of programs targeted at um, 
those have, who have not traditionally been uh, making been availing able to avail themselves to these programs. That's why, at the end of the day, we're, we're using a little bit of the the richness of some of the other programs to balance everything out. So it's very strong um, across the board on the, uh, but particularly on the low income. Okay, uh, uh, this question, I haven't gotten to many of the questions that have been asked, um, but uh, here's one from yours. Most homes today, today have been built to uh, very low energy efficiency st standards. Who is looking at uh, mandating building upgrades? Should that be a part of the program? We've been doing we've been doing a home energy score uh, through the Department of Energy whenever we're doing a home energy audit. So it's almost as you know the Energy Star guide that you see on an appliance. Well, we're doing that with a home. So you know on a scale of one to ten, your home ranks in X or Y or a Z. And then if you made these improvements, we can move you you know from a six to an eight. And if you did this, you can go from a six to a seven. So I think, again, the education as part of that uh, is very important going through that process, showing people what the potential for energy savings are as they're going through that. As Adam mentioned, I mean, the payback that is, you know, one of the highest, you know, barriers to implementation is that you have companies that are looking at 18 months and saying that that's not fast enough. So finding a way, because again, if you don't do it at that time, it's a lost opportunity 10, 15, 20 years down the road where they're not going to be using it. Taking a whole house, whole building approach, so you're not putting a high efficiency furnace in a sieve of a home, making sure that you're looking at the shell and kind of packaging that whole thing together and getting it in a way that customers can understand it. You know, as Adam said, everyone that you know cares about energy efficiency is in this room. So trying to translate what that means on an upcoming energy bill to them or whether it's greater comfort or businesses, greater productivity, you know, sitting down and making this a point of emphasis for those companies, because right now it's not on their radar. They're not thinking about it as often as they should. I remember in the last ener energy master plan, our, one of our main comments was that New Jersey's building codes hadn't been revisited in a very long time. I believe they yet now have, and so that, that's been been progress. I think what, you know, one of the, the, you know, we have a lot of old housing stock in the state, and it, that's a, definitely a significant issue. Another significant issue is a lot of that old housing stock, particularly for low and moderate income people, is uh, a lot of them rent. And so rental, tackling rental properties is a real issue because the, um, the, the landlord may not be interested in making those investments, and the tenants are certainly not necessarily, they can, they're in a position maybe to turn out the light more, more frequently, but they're not gonna replace the windows. So, so that, there's a tension there that needs to be resolved because it's, you know, it's a benefit that might go to the tenant, but the landlord would have to pay for it, or vice versa, and there's, we need to find a way to reconcile that. Another area I think we need, so the building codes, yeah, my understanding is we're not, so the legislation allows for savings from building codes and appliance standards to be counted um, toward that target. But my understanding is we're not doing that with building codes now. So we have some work to do around that and we don't have appliance standards and that is a legislative piece. So we've, I think this is an area where we all have some thinking to do and some work to do. And, and bringing DCA into that conversation as well, yeah. right? So, yeah. Well, how do we do that? Uh, how do you um, do that when a lot of those issues ought to be uh, sort of established by 
the federal government, and that's not going to happen with the current administration we have in Washington. I think there are existing appliance standards. You can do both. You can do either, but there are. But I mean, some of them are in place, and maybe they won't notice and repeal them. Um, but you're right. I mean, that is a challenge. We're on our own at this point. But I, I do think that because um, a lot of appliance standards need to be uniform because appliances go from state to state. It's interstate commerce, right? So um, there's some things we can do on the state level, but a lot of it is federal. But I'm hoping that um, things will change on the federal level before they notice the appliance standards. Okay. Um, <clears throat> is, is there any uh, low-lying uh, low fruit that should be uh, really addressed by everybody? Somebody early in the discussion talked about having uh, one principle for the entire program. Should we be going out there and saying we really ought to be grabbing some of that 20 to 30 percent of waste that's uh, Adam talked about in commercial buildings? What what could be done real quickly in terms of those kind of savings? Yeah, we, we do think that there's an opportunity to uh, to attack smaller commercial buildings that haven't that have been overlooked through uh, the program the OCE runs. OCE has run a very successful direct install program, but it has been targeted more uh, at medium-sized buildings. It's known for doing multi-measure, which is a, which is to its credit. Uh, it does a lot of HVAC replacements, and so we do think that a lot of what we've done in other places uh, and our competitors have done in other places with smaller commercial buildings. Uh, could could be a quick win, and those are those are with the right program design. Those are people that uh, can act quickly, because it's a direct install approach. Because it's not a question of designing a rebate and hoping the efficiency comes. It's more of a uh, proactive direct install approach. Dave talked about being proactive, and so we think that that would be one example. I have colleagues in the room that probably have similar things to say around uh, residential and single-family residential and weatherization and other things. But uh, again, I think you look at the portfolio programs. You carve out some some quick successes uh, while OCE is, is running at full speed, and then you sort out along the way who, who owns what later. But, um, you know, again, lesson learned in New York. The more meetings you have, the more forums you have, the more you sit around theorizing about it, uh, it's, none of it's getting done. That we know for sure. None of the, No one's out there, and we're not going to walk out of here today and go, oh, my God, while we were in there talking about it, they all upgraded their facilities. Who knew? That's not going to happen. Yeah, this definitely needs to be parallel path, not a serial through. Um, you know, one of the areas when you talk about a quick win, and Adam has mentioned it a number of times, when you look at the programs that are out there, going back to that structure, what's out there, the targets, and then where are the voids, one of the things that got approved was a program called Save Green on Main, where we're able to help these customers that are using 5,000 therms of gas or less. And just to put that into perspective, an average homeowner uses about a thousand therms of gas. So this is about you know five times. So this is not the large big box stores. These are the retail stores, the mom and pops that are, you know, have the ability to participate in clean energy program offerings, but are often overlooked. So we came forward, said we have the relationship with the customers, we can partner with contractors like Lime Energy and others to bring the savings, literally knock on the doors, walk up and down Cookman Avenue in Asbury Park and talk about the programs that are available 
for them with the contractor and with the utility representatives. And that's something we did in the early days of the direct install program, something that kind of got lost through, saw an opportunity and found a good role for the utility to bring these programs back to those small businesses. And um, again, that's Save Green on Main. But it was an opportunity to say, should be addressed, isn't addressed, there's a void, something quick we can do while we're figuring out the bigger picture. Yeah, Tom, Tom just to, um, you know, to your question about Where's the low-hanging fruit? I think the state has been lagging behind in energy efficiency for many, many years. And so in many ways, the entire state is, presents us with an opportunity of low-hanging fruit in every service territory. And the thing that I get concerned about is when I look at what it would take for us to get to where we want to be to, to move to a leadership role, which would be where we are if we hit these targets. And we think through what would it really take in terms of people and IT systems and this ramp rate. And it is a very, very significant and complex challenge to go from where we are today, which is like this much, to what it would take to achieve those targets. Targets, by the way, which pay for themselves this ramp rate, and I don't think there's anybody better at executing on these types of programs than PSE&G. This is one of our core competencies. It's execution in the field. And we have studied this, and there's a ramp rate, and you're not going to get to full achievement of those targets without going through this ramp. The question is, how can we improve the ramp? And so the issue to me on the low-hanging fruit is, we got to get going on that ramp because the first part of it isn't steep. It gets steep. But if you really think through how many people you're going to have to hire, well, how many IT systems you're going to have to need, how you're going to administer these programs at this scale, this is a tremendous scale upgrade to be in this leadership position. An upgrade that makes sense, that pays for itself, that is, brings these benefits. But the, the issue is, it's all low-hanging fruit. But think about this curve. And the first part of that curve is getting there, getting going. But we got to get onto the curve. And so I know I'm a little bit of a broken record, but the question is, how do we work through these issues so we can at least get onto the curve? And there's not going to be a lot happening at the very beginning because it kind of looks like this. Okay, I've been told we're unfortunately out of time. So uh, if everybody wants to sum up what they want, if they have anything they want to say, we'll sort of produce. Dave, you got the mic. Yep, thank you. No, it's been uh, really enjoy coming and, and talking to all of you. As some several people have said here today, the experts are in the rooms, and I've learned so much from so many people in this room. It is, it is low-hanging fruit. It is the future. Um, we haven't talked much in this presentation or this conversation about how technology advances, advanced technologies are just pushing us along as well. And when I think about the future and how we can serve our customers um, in, in you know, much more innovative ways, much more digital ways that um, just lower their costs and make their lives easier, it's very, very exciting. And we are, and I feel very strongly about collaboration, and that the best way 
to put the foot on that electric vehicle pedal is to get together and start talking through the issues. And that's what I want to do. I look forward to doing it. And thank you very much for having me. So just going to start, if you think about the role of energy efficiency in an 80% reduction in 2050, right? So if we're going to look for this 80% reduction in carbon emissions by the year 2050, the role that offshore wind is going to play, solar is going to play, energy storage, low carbon fuels, renewable natural gas, all of that being put in there. And at the same time, one of the best things to do is get that denominator as low as possible. And that's how energy efficiency can help us get to that 80-50 goal. So I know we've said a few times, we hope it doesn't get lost. It cannot get lost. Energy efficiency needs to be there to get that denominator as low as possible as all of these other things work in parallel. It's not going to be one answer, right? It's going to be a portfolio of solutions that's going to get us to that 80-50 goal that's um, out there, governor signed in as part of the Paris Accord, and so many other countries have as well, and energy efficiency is gonna be a big part of that. So thanks for having us up here. Well, that was great. I totally align with that um, around the, the carbon reductions, the environmental benefits, um, and that we, we absolutely, this is the foundation of every, energy efficiency is the foundation of everything that we, we need to do and want to do, and we have to do this. We have to get it right. We have to do it together um, and do it now. Thanks. Uh, I would, uh, maybe I've said this already, but I would uh, suggest borrowing aggressively on best practices from other places to act quickly, to measure results, and to course correct, rather than take a, a cautious approach. Uh, if, if the goal is to get to 2% by, by, by the target year, right, and I think that we really need to do that. Again, I'll say that between, whether it's the OCE or the IOU, and the customer in energy efficiency, are a host of companies that need to invest in this. Uh, we're here, we're prepared to invest in innovative business models that are going to make this happen. Uh, but when we're in forums and, and policy conversations, which I un perfectly understand need to happen, we're not investing, we're not hiring, not putting people on the street. So I would say borrow best practices aggressively, act quickly, measure the results, and course correct. Thank you. And, and I, I'm in complete agreement. We've got to do this. We've got to do this now. We've got to, do, we've got to, we've got to transition our whole energy portfolio um, to include not only energy efficiency, but renewable energy. And it's going, to, it's going to take shared sacrifice. There's no question about it. And I, I, and I emphasize the word shared. It means that if ratepayers are going to be asked to pay for these, that also the utilities are going to have to make some sacrifices. It's not just a question of asking the ratepayers to, to make these sacrifices. And it's extremely important because you know what? Not everybody is in the room here. A lot of people are in the room, but not the people who are barely paying, affording their, their electricity bills right now. People who are barely able, maybe they have to choose between prescriptions and, and, and getting that bill paid. So there are a lot of those people out there, they can really benefit from energy efficiency. There's no question about it, but they can't if it's too expensive. So we really, really have to do this wisely, as we have to do all of our other programs wisely. We have to make sure that our benefits significantly outweigh the costs.
Okay. Uh, and uh, thank the panelists. I thought they did an excellent job. I apologize. I think we could spend another hour here, but uh, John's going to end up. And thank you very much. And not, not only is he the moderator of this, but he is going to go home and over the course of the weekend write a story about this. Uh, so you will see that on Monday. Um, and uh, please you know, share that with others who weren't able to be here. We are also, like we do on all our events, and you can go see the past ones, especially around the future of energy, we build a page around this event where we will have a podcast uh, that also can be shared as well as the story and any other information um, that, that has come, come out of this, including the bios of the panelists. So this doesn't end here. Uh, and that's, that's sort of the point of all this, is to keep these conversations going. So thank you all for being here. Feel free to stick around. I think uh, some of these folks are, are willing to stay and talk. Uh, but thank you all for coming, and have a great weekend. We hope you enjoyed this NJ Spotlight Roundtable podcast. Be sure to join us for the next NJ Spotlight Roundtable on October 21st in New Brunswick, New Jersey, the third in a series of panels on the opioid addiction crisis in New Jersey. For more information on NJ Spotlight and its roundtables, visit njspotlight.com. For everyone at NJ Spotlight, this is Steve Lubetkin. Thank you for joining us, and we'll see you out there on the net. Take good care. NJ Spotlight, news, issues, and insight for New Jersey.